Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Howdy. Good to see you guys. Uh, it's always an honor to be here. Um, you know, I had no idea walking out of college what my journey would be. And uh, I look back now, though, and say, man, I had no idea that when I went to work for Ken in his two-bedroom apartment uh, as our office, uh, building this little church in a junior high, that I would have a whole ministry career with ministries that didn't own a building. It's been kind of wild, but God's been prepping me for that. So it's been... Uh, it's all starting to make sense a little bit now, but uh, it was a couple of years ago that I met with Louis Giglio, who's been a mentor of mine for years, and talked about this idea of planting churches in culture-shaping cities. And as Don and I were continuing in ministry, we were really happy in Breakaway, but a long story very short was just, we started to feel it was time to step out and, and pastor a church, and we're figuring out how that went, and that's when Louis and I started to talk about going to cities that are culture shapers, global culture shapers. That's cities that are the hubs of the arts, uh, of business, of education, of government. And uh, so we decided we think that's what we're called to do. So the last several months, uh, my wife and I have flown all over America, uh, literally to different cities. And it's been an amazing journey, praying over all these different cities in our country and praying for the church to rise up and for Jesus to be made famous in those cities and for the culture to shift uh, in America because of God's work in these critical cities. And then also praying, Lord, which one would you call us to? And as we were doing that, there were some we knocked off the list. It was kind of like college visits. You go, I just don't see myself being there. But uh, we were really surprised when we visited one. Uh, we had no idea the impact it was gonna have on us. But it was immediate, walking into the city and seeing that what we had read on paper was really true. One out of every three people in the city are between the ages of 20 and 35. And you feel it right away. These are young people. They're active, motivated young people. One out of 10 people in the city were in college currently. Uh, and so you go, wow, this is a young, motivated group of people. And yet 24% of them, when asked what's your religious affiliation, say none. Uh, and so it is a city that has some great churches, but that's just the thing. It has some great churches. It doesn't have a lot of great churches. Uh, it just has a few in a city of over six million. And so you realize this is a culture-shaping city, reaching young people uh, with uh, not quite the presence in its fullest that we'd like to see in a city like this. So it's been a journey for Don and I, but we made the decision to cross the line and we're moving, uh, we think, in a couple months here uh, to Washington, D.C., uh, which I think you would guess is a culture-shaping city uh, for some reasons, and uh, we're excited about it. It's gonna face some challenges. It's not as easy as moving back to Texas, but God didn't call us to easy, and so we were open to moving back here. Uh, that would have made something simpler, but we felt like the Lord was leading us to be a part of what he's doing there, and we absolutely want to, and we're excited about it. So please be praying for us. Uh, it's an expensive town. Uh, cost of living is about 40% higher than here. So you're like, oh, okay, uh, surprise. Uh, so uh, that's gonna be a challenge. And uh, again, it's, it's got some unique challenges as a city, but man, what an amazing place as we look at the next chapter of our life to come in and say, we feel called to love these people in the name of Jesus and see his name made great in the capital of our country. So we're pretty passionate about that. We're excited about linking arms with some of the other pastors in the city already have begun to do that. And uh, we're not launching it next week. We're not starting. So I've got a lot of people asking me like, when's it start? Later. Uh, uh, so, so if you're gonna ask me a bunch of details, let me tell you now, I don't know them, but uh, I'm working hard on them and we have a, an amazing team that is gonna go do this together. So it's not just Donna and I going, but, uh, but please pray for us as we figure out a lot of the details you would expect people need to. So, and thank you in advance for all the support uh, that Ken has been and then all of FaithBridge to us. It's been pretty, pretty special and we always loved coming back. So, all right, that's that. So feel good? Let me pray for us and then let's talk about Jesus, shall we? Yeah, thank you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for these moments we have now around your word. And I pray, God, you would help us see what you're doing 
And then, Lord, I really, I just, gosh, I feel like this, this message for today, God, has the potential to really change the core of our lives and how we see ourselves and how we live in, in our spheres of influence. And I just feel there's so much power and potential in this. And I want us to get on that and be a part of that. And I just can't deliver that. So we're asking you, God, will, will you meet with us in a way only you can? And I just want to invite you all, if you're willing, to, to take a minute and you ask him. Say, Lord, please teach me uh, today. And then if you would, please pray for me that the Lord would use me and I'd be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 2012, Daniel Day-Lewis won the Academy Award for his portrayal of Abraham Lincoln. And the seriousness with which he took that role is legendary. He isolated himself for months. He read thousands of pages of firsthand accounts with the president so he could exactly mimic his voice, that gentle tenor, reedy and slightly cracked, and his shuffling, flat-footed walk. And he held that character for months. And so when he delivered that performance, his peers see that role as legendary because of the seriousness with which he took preparation and with the fullness that he embodied every role that he takes. And if you've seen the movie, you know it's a great gift to us in America, uh, his portrayal of that role. Not too many years before, Brendan Fraser, who you might know from such hits as Encino Man and The Mummy, also played Abraham Lincoln in the romantic comedy Bedazzled. Critics were less complimentary of that film, <laughs> describing it as weak, uh, pitiful, and persistently unfunny. Now, Brendan Fraser is without question a naturally very talented actor, and yet critics were less kind to him. Why? Because they would say he didn't embody that role of the 16th president of the United States with the same seriousness and energy as Daniel Day-Lewis. And so they weren't as transported as he took on the role of Abraham Lincoln. Now, why tell you all this? For this reason, as we're thinking about our own lives and as we're evaluating whether or not we're successes in life, one of the ways we can do that is to look at the different roles we've been given by God. That none of us, our whole lives are encompassed by one role, yet all of us have different roles that God has called us to play. You are a child, you are a husband, you are a wife, you are an employee, a parent. There's all these different roles and we can pull those out and say, how am I doing at this role? With what level of meticulousness have I prepared for it? How am I embodying this role I've been given under God? And as you evaluate those roles, you can determine whether or not I'm a success in life. And so I want to talk about how we live into a role that honestly I think is a role many times we don't think much about or as much as we should. And it's the role of a member of a family. All of us are members of a family. And though we're from varied backgrounds and we're all wired very differently and are doing different things, all of us in this room have been placed by God into a family, right? Now, I know what many of you are thinking, okay, this is going to be a talk about parenting now, right? Which would be a legitimate way to go. Because I imagine a large percentage of us in here are parents. But I was thinking a larger percentage of us in here are children. 100% of us came from somebody, right? And so as we're talking about filling these roles, I want to talk about our role in our family of origin, right? Because here's the reality. All of us have been profoundly impacted by our family, whether we wanted to or not. I mean, I was looking at a picture the other day and uh, pulled it out. And I remember looking at it and I'm like, I don't remember taking this. Like, when was I by a horse, right? And I remember looking at it and I'm like, oh, that's not me, it's my father, right? It's like, ah, like I didn't realize how much I look like him and how much like him I am in some ways that are good and some ways that are bad. And so all of us, for better or for worse, we've been impacted by our parents and impacted by our families, right? I mean, for many of us, your 
greatest joys, if I was to ask you to tell me your life story, your greatest joys and your deepest pains are probably tied to your family of origin, who you came up with. Many of us in here are in counseling, and you're not in counseling because you have an annoying neighbor. You're in counseling because you're trying to unravel some complexities in you emotionally that are the direct result of the house you grew up in, right? And so the reality is for better or for worse, we've been bound together with these people. And some of you go, I don't know why. Why would God do that? Why would he put me with these people? Some of you feel like George Burns who said, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-lit family in another city, right? (laughs) You're like, I wanna get out of there. But here's the reality. Not only have we been profoundly impacted by our family, we are forever bound to that same family. Whether you move far from them or not, the ongoing quality of your relationship to God and his measurement of whether or not you've been a success in life is forever inextricably linked to those people. You see it in 1 Timothy 3, where he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. He says, if you're a husband and you are unkind to your wife, I don't want to hear from you. Your relationship to me is forever linked to that woman. And some of us say, well, that makes sense, husband and wife, because you live together in the same home, but keep reading. Because you get into 1 Timothy 5 and Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus and trying to deal with how do we take care of aging widows. And Paul told him, if a widow has children or grandchildren. So we're talking about the adult children of a widow. He says, let them show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Did you hear what Paul just said? He defined godliness as caring as an adult for your aging parent. And then he goes further and says, and if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I don't even fully understand what that means, but it sounds bad, right? But what I do understand is he is tying faith in God so closely to caring for your adult parents that he says, if you don't take care of them, I question whether or not you even know me. So if we want to be people who know God and walk with God, he has bound us together with these people. And for some of you, you go, oh, great, Ben, I've been looking for a talk like this because I love my parents so much and I've been trying to figure out how do I honor them more? And you're so excited about these notes. And I would just say, congratulations, that's fantastic. For many others of us in here, you might be in this room and you're like, I can't stand these people. I wouldn't naturally pick a friendship group like these people. I haven't picked a friendship group like them. And so every holiday, I'm sitting around the table with these people and going, why would God do this? Why bind me to these people, right? And yet he's done it. And so let me give us some perspective and then we'll get some practice at the end. But the first piece of perspective I want to give you is that God is sovereign over your family. God is sovereign over your family. It was his idea. So in Ephesians 3.14, God is, or Paul is praying to God, and listen to what he calls God. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What he calls God is God is the origin of family. God designed family. It's his idea. And he designed it as an organizational method for cultivation. It's, it's a pretty brilliant idea. If you think about it, I'm going to make some people, God decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create sex, which is a great idea, and I'm going to use it. I thought more people would agree with me on that. Y'all seem like, oh, maybe. It's whatever. You know, I thought it was a great idea. But um, I'm going to make that, which is fun, the means by which I create more people. And then as I do that, these little people are now bound up because they came from the DNA of an adult man and a woman, and they're going to get to watch what masculinity and femininity look like. And I'm going to see it modeled by these people, and that's incredible. And so in Genesis 1, you see God create humanity. His first command to them is be fruitful and multiply. In the little audio Bible for my kids, he translated it as, have babies, right? <laughs> Create little people. And then in Genesis 2, God puts them in a garden and he says he put them there to cultivate. That's the verb he gives to the man and woman, cultivate. What is cultivation? 
If you're cultivating a garden, you pull out things and you put in things. Why? So that the living things can flourish under God. You manipulate the environment so life can flourish. And he says, that's what a good parent does. And so you, you bring these little people into existence and then you come around them and you create an environment in your home where human beings can flourish under God. Flourish as a man under God. Flourish as a woman under God. Flourish as an artist, an architect, using your skills and abilities for the common good. It was a great idea, family. God designed it. It was his idea and he designed it for cultivation. But for many of us, as you think back in your family experience, that doesn't describe what you came up in. For many of us, you go, Ben, there wasn't cultivation in my home. There was chaos in my home. And let me tell you something. That is the human story. Sin distorted family from the jump. That you see Eve, rather than choosing to help Adam, she chose selfishness in its place. Adam, rather than protecting his wife, chose passivity. And you see in a relationship that had been built with complete vulnerability and no shame, you see in the end of it, selfishness does what? It breeds shame and blame and the disconnect of the family unit. And then you see it have an impact on their kids. So that by the time you have the first son and the second son, there's jealousy and bitterness in the home. And the first son murders the second son. Four people on the planet and one murders the other. Think about the dysfunction of that. And I say that because so for many people, when I counsel them in ministry, they tell me about the dysfunction of their home and they say it as though it's an isolating thing. Ben, you don't know what my family was like. You don't know what my parents were like. You don't know what was growing up in that house. And you say that to distance you from the rest of humanity. But read the Bible. The first family, there's murder. And then through the rest of Genesis, what do you have? Swindling family members in business deals. Violence against family members, sexual abuse of family members. You get chaos from the jump. And so your pain and dysfunction in your family, far from being an isolating thing from the rest of us, it's exactly what connects you to the rest of us. Not everybody gets joy, everybody gets pain. And I'm not saying that to diminish the pain in your family. I'm saying that to link you into the human story. God created families for cultivation, but sin has made family a seedbed for chaos. And all of us have felt that. And so you look at that and you go, is it just broken then? Defunct, get out of there, get away from those people, it's all over, I'm leaving. Is that what we're supposed to do? That's not what God does. And you see God begins to display grace through the family. He does not abandon the structure, but what does he do? In Genesis 12, he grabs one guy, Abraham, plucks him out and says, I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna bless your family. You're gonna have a son, he's gonna have a son, they're gonna have kids, on it's gonna go. And he says, and through you, every family on the earth will be blessed. And you see, God chooses a family and says, through you is gonna come a son. And as we watch the lineage of Abraham through the Bible, it culminates in Jesus, the son who lived the perfect life we did not, died the death we deserved, and then beat sin in its chaos to make us who we're meant to be under God. And you see that that grace began in a little family and the grace of God coming to us through the son of God, Jesus Christ, that came through one family and it has now washed onto the shores of every family. Every family on earth is gonna be blessed through this. God is redeeming the family structure for his glory. He used the family to give us Jesus Christ. And man, he wants to use you and your family. He does. So let me be more specific. God is not just sovereign over family as an idea. God is sovereign over your family, over the exact family you're in. That's what Paul was praying in Ephesians 3. He says that I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family on earth is named. That word name has the idea of source, brought into being. So yeah, your mom's college roommate may have introduced you to your dad at a bar and that's how they met and all that, but God ordained it. God ordained your family. God stuck you exactly where you are with these people on purpose. And for some of you, you're still mad at him about it. <laughs> but let me tell you something. It's interesting in Ephesians 3 is Paul is praying. If you read the book of Ephesians, which we don't have time to do, there's no commands in the first three chapters. There's just one to remember. All the first three chapters are is how God has blessed us through his son, Jesus Christ. And then in chapters four, five, and six, you get like 42 commands. Now we work. Why? Because of what he's done for us. 
And at the hinge is this prayer. All that Jesus Christ has done to forgive us, to wash away shame and guilt, to bring redemption, all that. And then he gets to this prayer and he says, it's for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in his love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. What's he saying there? The God who is sovereign over your family and puts you in the family you're in loves you with an inexhaustible and immeasurable love. And when you get that, this sovereign, loving God put me in this family, let me tell you something. It instantly liberates you from sin-justifying victimhood because suddenly you get to be a source of compassion to your family, even if they're not compassionate to you because you realize my family doesn't dominate my story. God dominates my story and he loves me and sent his son for me. And when you begin to realize that, if your heavenly father failed you, you're your earthly father failed you, your heavenly father loves you and has redeemed you and loves you with an inexhaustible love, when you get that, your godly family gives you the tools to be a blessing to your biological family. That's what Christ has purchased. That's what you see in the life of Joseph in Genesis. Genesis 37, one of the descendants of Abraham. Joseph was a bit of a punk, was always telling his brothers how he's better than them, which irritated his brothers, right? So when he went to visit them in a field, they threw him in a pit, which happens, right? <laughs> but then as he's in that pit as, a, as an early teenager, they start talking about what are we gonna do with him? And they start talking and several of them say, well, we're gonna murder him today. And we're gonna tell dad an animal did it, but we're gonna kill him. And they say, as the conversation went on, they sat down to eat. The conversation took a while and they were flippant enough about his life or death that they could discuss it over lunch. You think that doesn't traumatize a teenager to know the people in my nuclear family don't give a rip about whether or not I live or die? They decide ultimately not to murder him, but to sell him. So they sell him into slavery, into Egypt, bye-bye. And he goes to Egypt and he's a slave, gets accused of a crime and put in prison, but there in prison by the sovereign hand of God, he makes connections that lead him to be a source of influence in Pharaoh's court over all of Egypt. And so you intersected with him when he's 40, and even at 40, has the pain of his family of origin gone away? Read Genesis 41. As he's working for Pharaoh, he gets married, they have a kid, and it says in Genesis 41, he named his firstborn Manasseh, because Manasseh means God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. You think the damage of your childhood doesn't affect you when you're 40? He just named his son, forget you, dad, right? Would you go, I mean, wouldn't that by definition mean that you haven't forgotten that you're still, you know what, you're processing and I get it. Let's just give you some space. But there's a lot of wounds in there until it starts to dawn on him that the gifts God has put in his life and the journey God has him on, even with its pain, has positioned him to where he understands the needs of Egypt in a famine and he has the solutions to fix it. And so as a leader in Egypt, he saves millions of lives as he begins to lead them agriculturally right around the time that his family of origin starve into death. And when they show up at this city, they're starving and terrified, and they realize the guy who now commands the most powerful nation in the universe is the guy we sold. And as they come to him trembling in fear, this is what he says, now seeing God as the supernatural architect of his life. He says to his brothers, the ones who abused him, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land for two years, and there are yet five in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, but God sent me before you to preserve for a remnant on earth and to keep alive many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he made me the father to Pharaoh. Do you hear what's happening? Rather than saying my identity is the victim of the failures of my family, he says my identity is I'm a child of the sovereign God over heaven and earth who loves me, and he directs my path, not you. And rather than making that a means to dismiss his family, he uses that as a means to bless his family. The gifts of his heavenly family enable him to bless his biological one, and the same is true of you. That's what Ephesians 3 is about. 
When you come to know Jesus Christ, you get God as a father and the inexhaustible love of God becomes the resource by which you walk out the 40 plus commands in the rest of Ephesians, including loving your parents. It's all linked together. When I know the sovereign God of the universe loves me, it liberates me to be a blessing to my family. My question for you is, are you willing to be an agent of compassion into your family? It's a natural thing to do if you know the grace of God. Jay's story was powerful. I was dying. I was a dead man. And through somebody else's death, I was given life, the ability to breathe. What's the most natural thing for Jay to do now? You saw it in the video and you thought, of course. This man's life put breath in my lungs. I will now use every breath to be a blessing to the people he loves and to anybody else I can bless. That is a very natural response when someone gives that kind of gift to you. Ephesians is saying the same thing. Jesus Christ gave his life willingly for you. He took on sin and death so that you could literally have the breath of God back in your lungs. That's what Jesus, the first thing he did when he rose from the grave, breathed on his disciples and said, experience the breath of God again. Come to life in God again through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now the most natural thing to do if you've known the grace of God through Jesus is to extend that grace to people he cares about. And God has ordained that you be in that family. And he's saying to you, I have loved you with an inexhaustible love. Now use that resource to be a blessing to these people, even if they're difficult. Do you see it? So God is sovereign over our family. And the last perspective is that we are meant to be stewards of our family. We're meant to be stewards of our role in our family. So you go, well, Ben, how do I do that? Well, let's talk about children first, and then we'll talk about parents. As he's working through about God's love for us, he begins to talk about how we walk it out. The word walk shows up five times in Ephesians. And one of the last walks is to be filled with the Spirit of God. And then as we're filled with God, we submit to one another, children to parents. So as a function of walking with God, we fill the role of child to a parent. So Ephesians 6.1 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And that word children is not really about little kids. It just means to come from somebody. So it's not age specific. All of us are children. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now that in the Lord is not meant to qualify the obedience in a way of limiting it. Like obey your parents, except if they ask you to murder people and sell drugs, and then you're not supposed to because of the Lord. That's not what he's saying. I mean, that's true. But he's not trying to diminish your obedience. He's trying to raise it. He says, children, obey them as a function of your commitment to the Lord. If you know Jesus Christ, love these people and honor them because this is the structure he built. For this is right. And then he gives you a quote from the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you and that you live long in the land. Now, for me growing up, the way I had always understood that was honor your parents, because if not, you're not going to live long in this land. What does that mean? It means like a rock's going to fall on you. God's going to hit you with lightning. You're like, no, mom. Ah! Right? And it's like, God's going to get you. Is that what that means? No. If you look in the context of the Old Testament, this tribal family is about to become a nation in this piece of land God gave them. And what God is saying to them is, I built societies to be functioned on the bricks of families. Preserve this family unit. Because if this family unit unravels, you will not dwell long in this land. Society is built on solid family. And we see that now in our country. The poverty rates quadruple in single-parent homes over two-parent homes. When our family units unravel, we will not dwell long in this land. And if you look at many of the social problems we're experiencing as a country, much of it is because of the disintegration of the family. We have to get this right if we want to dwell long in the land. So how do we model that to our young kids? If we're adults and have aging parents, how do we model being children of a parent? Well, let's build off those two words, obey and honor, right? As children, we can cultivate a culture of honor. How do we do that? by obeying. That word obey is a combination of two words in Greek, listen and under. And so I would say, what does obeying look like if I'm an adult and have aging parents? One is I think it means to listen attentively. If you're an adult and you're calling your parents and it's typical for you to say things like, I know, I know, I know, I'm an adult. That says more about your immaturity than it does about their nagging. 
Parents are supposed to give advice, and they may fumble and do it poorly, but they're supposed to do that. And as children, we're meant to listen. And so one of the ways you can fill your role as a child is to be a learner. Be willing to put yourself in the learner position under your parents, even if you think they have nothing left to teach you. My father passed away in October, and going through his belongings, I got his journals. And my father did not walk with the Lord through, through much of his life. And, um, and yet, there were seasons where he really, he really wanted to. And I remember finding a journal where my dad had written out every day, he wrote long prayers to God for each of his children. And they were deep and heartfelt and quite frankly, beautiful. And I remember reading that and I'm like, I don't do that. And I'm like the professional. <laughs> and I was so challenged by this sweet, powerful faith of my dad. And I was like, man, I kind of wish we would have talked about this. You know, like, uh, but I want to learn from that. I want to be more like him there. And there may be things in your parents' life that you're not willing to see now because some of their issues are so big, but be willing to come in and listen attentively. They still have some things to teach us. And then I would say act responsively. Act responsively. What does that mean? It means be inclined in heart to do what they say. Our resistance is usually a byproduct of our pride and our arrogance. But to honor God is to cultivate a culture of honor in our families. How can you do that with your aging parents? You can do it by listening to them attentively and by acting responsively. Be inclined to be a servant when you enter their sphere. Jesus did that. You saw him do it with Mary, right? That even as Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry, what happened? Mary came to him and they were at a wedding and she was like, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. Jesus, there's no wine. And what did he say? He's like, woman, it's not my, it's not my time yet. Like, I got this whole Messiah plan mapped out and this wedding is not on that, right? But he didn't just say, oh, you're not the son of God, sit down, right? What did he do? He was like, it's not my time. And he's like, hey, guys, go get some jugs of water real quick. Okay, you got them? All right, wine. All right, let's bounce. All right, and then he just kind of snuck out. And he found a way to honor his messianic timeline and still obey his mom, right? And he's our model. So be inclined to be a servant to your adult parents. I, man, I used to counsel college students to do this all the time. Like they'd come to college and they would uh, start to grow in their faith and realize, oh my gosh, I never took Jesus seriously when I was a kid. And so they were like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And so they go home and they want to tell their parents all the ways they messed up and need to be more like Jesus. And they'd come back to me and say, hey, it didn't go well. Like, I don't understand. Like I went home and told my parents they need to change everything. And they were like resistant. And I was like, yeah, um, here's the deal, bro. They raised you your entire life. You've been away for a hot minute. Now you're coming back and telling them how to run their life. I said, that just doesn't play well. Like sermons don't go up very well like that. You know what I mean? I said, so here's what you need to do. Stop talking. Just stop talking. But the next time you go to your parents' house, do the dishes without them asking you. And then mow the yard. And I promise you, your atheist parents will believe there's a God in heaven <laughs> if you just do simple stuff like that. And it's true. Many of us, the doorway into ministry, into the homes of our parents are not going to come through sermons, but through serving. Are we humble enough to do it? And not just to obey them, but to honor them. Honoring people means to ascribe worth and value to them. Even if they don't deserve it as a person, the role does. And so if I'm going to honor somebody, how do I do it? I speak graciously to them. That's what he says, to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We speak graciously to them. As I read through my dad's journals, I found some that were around the time I was that 20-year-old guy growing in faith, and like a lot of young people, was, was a bit arrogant and judgmental about it. And I found in my dad's journal where he wasn't trashing me by any stretch, but, but it hurt him because uh, he felt like I was shaming him for not being enough. And that never crossed my mind, the impact I could have on my dad. You know, you always think of impact coming down, what they've done to me, what they're doing to me. I didn't think about the impact my words were having on my father. And, uh, and I wanted to change that. 
And so I would say, don't miss the opportunity to speak graciously to your family. You can do that. Jesus did it. When Jesus finally launched his earthly ministry, do you remember what happened? He started healing people. People started to gather. And then he got a big group in a house, so many that they were bursting out the doors. And it was his launch of, I'm beginning my earthly ministry. And as he's doing it, he gets a message relayed from the back. Jesus, your family's in the back. They're here to come get you. And then Mark says, because they were saying he's out of his mind. Imagine that. You're Jesus launching your tenure as the Messiah, the Son of God, and your mom and your brothers are in the back saying to people, sorry, everybody, when his blood sugar gets low, he thinks he's the Son of God. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, you get down from there, get down from there. You're like, trying to save the world, mom. And you find out later his brothers made fun of him. His brothers mocked him. But then what happened? They mocked him his whole life as a son of God, and then he died. And then what happened? Didn't stay dead. And 1 Corinthians says he appeared to the 500, and then it says and he appeared to James, his brother. What do you think that meeting was like? You think he showed up like, who's Messiah now, bro? <laughs> you laughing now, cuz? Like, is that what he did? Shame him? No, what did he do? I think whatever he did, it changed James' life. And we get a book in our Bible written by James about how the grace of God changes everything in a human life. I think Jesus came and said, my death buried all your failures, James, and my resurrection offers new life. And so Jesus had the resources to bless his brother and we have the resources to bless our family too. We do, so speak graciously to them. If Jesus Christ, while hanging on the cross, could say as one of his last words, John, please take care of my aging mother, then you have time today to call your mom, okay? Call your mom, right? And be gracious. Be gracious. And not just graciously, but gratefully. Don't underestimate the need for your parents to hear that something they've done has been good to you. And I know for some of us that may be hard. You go, I can't think of anything. I know for me, with my grandfather, we were not particularly close. I don't know that he's particularly close with anybody. But he served in World War II. Never talked about it. But he would have mementos and pictures and books around. And so I realized he and I have nothing to talk about, nothing to connect about. So every holiday, it's like, there's nothing here. And I just realized part of honoring him is gonna be to celebrate everything I can celebrate in his life. And so I pulled out, it was right when Google Earth came out. And I was showing him how it works and, and how you can zoom in on different parts of the world. And as I did that, I remember he sat down next to me and he was like, go to, and then he named some coordinates, 42, whatever. And I was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have no clue what you're saying. I don't know latitude and longitude, right? So we kind of fumbled around together onto Greenland, and as we zoomed in, sure enough, there was an airstrip unmarked by Google. And then you could drop it into horizontal mode, and he started to show me how he would fly his bomber over one mountain and then bank around a corner to land on that airfield. And then he showed me another one, and then another one. He showed me about six of them. And by the end of it, our family was gathered around the table as he began to tell us these stories. And we had a pretty profound moment as a family because he never talks about this. But why did it come up? Because we were just trying to find somewhere to connect. So celebrate whatever you can celebrate in their life. Speak gratefully to them. And some of you go, well, Ben, I have nothing to be grateful for. Well, the word parent is derived from the term to come into existence. We can start there. Steve Jobs spent a lot of money and time to find his biological mother who he hadn't met because he was adopted. And his biographer asked him, why did you do that? And he said, for one simple reason, I assumed that she was pregnant with me under great duress, and so I just wanted to thank her for not aborting me. And I don't say that to shame anyone that's had an abortion. The grace of God is available to all of us and everyone in here is from all different manners of life and had different struggles and issues in our life. But what I'm telling you is for many of you, you may have had pain in your family and yet you can still be grateful that they brought you to life. U.S. Department of Agriculture released a report recently that said to raise a child from zero to 18 costs roughly $250,000. So if you're in junior high or high school in here today, at lunch, you can speak gratefully to your parents and just say thank you for dropping the quarter mill on uh, keeping me alive, right? That'd be a great place to start. Parents, don't goad them into it. There's something you'd like to say to me, don't do it. You'll kill the moment, don't do it. Let them do it when they're ready, 
but you could start there. Now, we could go on and on about that, but let me say a brief word to parents. He says after that, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And you go, well, how can a father not do that? How can parents not do that? Well, I would say you can create a culture of honor as a parent by not provoking them to anger. How do you provoke a kid to anger? By being either overbearing or by disappearing. And so the art of a family is to do neither of those things. Being overbearing, hypercritical, always nitpicking, never satisfied, that does damage to children. Holly Schriffen, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Mary Washington, said every human being has three basic needs in order to be happy. They must feel autonomous, competent, and connected with other people. But overbearing parents decrease an adult child's feeling of autonomy, competence, and connection, and it's directly linked to depression and distress later in life. If you're hypercritical, you provoke a child to anger. In the book of Proverbs, he doesn't command his son to obey. He reasons with him to obey in areas of sexual ethics and business and finances. The son that he's talking to is probably between the ages of 13 and 15. So as we raise up our children to adults, we become less commanding and more advising. Do you see it? But in the same way that we're not overbearing, we also don't, aren't disappearing. Absence of parents McGill University did a study in Canada that found that growing up without a father alters the structure of the brain and produces children who are more aggressive and angry. It's biological. They need you in their life, right? Uh, there's an old African proverb, if we don't initiate the young men, they'll burn the village down. And a lot of the anger in the world today is because we need parents that will engage and tell us that we matter, right? And I would say it's not just being in the home, because some of you in the home, I would say even a step further, being present in the home. So for many of us, the most godly thing we'll do is, is put the phone down. I mean, I had a friend the other day that I was talking to, and he was like, dude, I was at home. He said, and my four-year-old daughter, I think he said she was four, he's like, was losing it. I mean, she was being crazy. And he said, finally, at one moment, I was like, you stop, what are you doing, stop it. And she said, I don't have anyone to play with. And he said, well, you just need to cut it out. And she said, well, maybe if you and mom would put your phones down and pay attention to me, I wouldn't act like this. And he said in that moment, he had these competing feelings. Instantly, he was like, insubordinate. <laughs> How dare you talk to your mother and father this way, right? He said, but it was hard to have that authority while I was holding my phone in my hand. I was like, don't tell me what to do, right? He said, but she got me. He said, because I realized it was a normal thing in our home. The kids are doing whatever, and my wife and I are in the kitchen just scrolling through our phones, subtly communicating to them that this is more important than you. And so for me, I just know no one's memory is linear. It comes in flashes. And for me, I decided with my little kids, I don't want their flashes of memory of their childhood to be dad on the phone. I don't. So when I come home for work, the way I'm trying to not disappear from my kids but engage them is as soon as I walk in the door, all electronics land on the kitchen counter and I don't touch them again until they're asleep because I want their little flashes of memory to be of dad on the ground playing with them because I want it to be easy for them to believe there's a heavenly father that loves them because they saw that kind of love from their dad. Right? So we're not overbearing, but we're not disappearing. But what we are is we're advising, giving them counsel, that goes on through the rest of your life, even through your mistakes. Some of us, the most godly thing we can do is acknowledging to our kids, I didn't do well here. I would have done this differently had I known this. That's okay to teach them that way. And then by encouraging them, speaking to them the words you would wanna hear. I had a friend Instagram this quote the other day. He said, be the person you needed when you were younger. And I instantly thought, a math tutor? I don't think the world needs me to try to do that. But then I realized what he meant by that, is all of us needed someone to tell us that they believe in us, that they see something in us. And you may not have gotten that, but you can be that. And don't, this would be my final word, don't miss the opportunity to do that. Don't miss the opportunity to cultivate a culture of honor in your home, to love your family, don't miss it. For me, there was a moment, um, towards the end of my father's life, he was making some health decisions that were going to take his life. And I continually tried to do my best to help him make some life changes and he just didn't want to do it. 
And at one point I visited his home and he was uh, emaciated. And I was trying to get him to get help in ways that he was not willing to do. And so finally at one moment I just said, you're gonna die here, this is it, you're gonna die here. And I walked out of the house and I stormed out into the driveway and I had a friend with me and I said, get in the car, man, I'm done with this. But I remember as, as soon as I got to the car, I, I had the sense in that moment to realize I'm not really thinking clear. And so I called a mentor and a friend from, from Faithbridge, from here. And I called him and just said, here's the situation I'm in. And I loved it because he acknowledged how I was feeling. But then he said, but Ben, the question you gotta ask yourself is, when your dad does die, all this frustration, anger you're feeling, he's like, it's gonna slowly go away. And what's gonna be left in your mind is you're gonna ask yourself, what did I do? Did I do what I was supposed to do as a son? Did I do what I would have wanted to do as a Christian? He said, so push through some of the rest of this that you need to process in healthy circles. He's like, but ask yourself as a Christian and as a son, what, what, what would I like to have said that I did to fill those roles? And it was really helpful for me. He said, I, I think as a Christian, you would wanna go in and, and offer to help him get to the hospital. And I did that. And I drove him to the doctor and I'm really glad I did that. And as I processed those words from my friend, I thought as a Christian, I, I need to ask my God to make peace with God. And I had another moment in life where I got to do that. Talk to him, kneel at his bedside about Jesus. And I didn't know how he was gonna feel about that and it was gonna be awkward, but I wanted to do it and it was good. As a son, I needed to tell him I forgive him for some things and I needed to tell him I love him and I needed to thank him for some things that were true in my life. And I got to do that. So when I got the phone call that he died, I remember sitting there and, and it instantly hit me. I just know so many people that they regret instantly in that moment. I wish I would have, I needed, I needed one more conversation. I, I, I wanted to, and I asked myself like, is there anything I missed? And the beauty of that moment is because of my community here, I said, no, no. I got to fill my role the best I could as a son in these final moments, and I got to fill my role as a Christian, and, and I just want you to experience that. I want you to know what that's like, to pray even now and say, God, I'm not their savior, but I am their son. I'm not their deliverer, but I am a daughter, and what would you want me to say to my brother, to my sister, to my father, to my mother that would honor you, God, and help them? And don't miss the opportunity to do that. You'll, you'll be glad you did, I promise. Let me pray for us. Thanks for being patient as I went over. Well, Father, I thank you that before you call us to do things to honor our biological family, you invite us into your heavenly family. And God, I just pray that's so clear to everybody here today that long before we're supposed to do anything, you have called us to be something. The commands of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 will not come until Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 happen. And that is where Jesus Christ lived the perfect life we could not. Die for our failures and our shames and our, the things we should have done and didn't. All of us have fallen short and Christ took all of that to the cross and he buried it in the grave and he rose so that whoever puts our faith in him might be adopted into the family of God. And so Lord, I just believe there's some people here today that that's the step they need to take. Not trying to fix their biological family, but trying to join your heavenly one. And so if there's anybody here that you've not done that, cry out to Jesus even now and say, I went in. If you're in the business of adopting people, adopt me. If you're in the business of forgiving and saving people, forgive and save me. Step into the family of God because it's the resources of the family of God that will allow you to bless your biological one. And please tell a pastor here, one of us, about what God's doing in your heart that we might journey with you. And then God, for those of us who know you, Lord, give us a vision in the days ahead of what it may be that as we enter into the sphere of our family to be people who cultivate a culture of honor, as far as it's healthy in our role as a son, a daughter, a parent, God, may we step in and be a blessing, cultivating a culture of honor for your glory, God, and for the good of those you've ordained, we journey with this family. And we pray this in the confidence and in the power of the name of Jesus, amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day.
everyone, welcome to Postscript. I'm Luann Riley, Grow Group and Discipleship Director, and I'm here with Bible teacher Ben Stewart, who just brought a sermon on the importance of our roles in families. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. Well, so good to have you back. Thanks. Get good to the be update, here. hear how you're doing. Yeah. Um, right. And what a great message that you shared with us today around the roles that God puts us in to live out our call of discipleship in yeah. those relationships in our families. Yeah. Uh, we did have some questions come in. Okay. Um, sure. So I'm just going to jump right into them. The first question uh, says, Ben, thank you for this message. And in their family, uh, they have. Uh, a child or a daughter who um, they don't have a great relationship with uh, shows a little bit of a disrespectful attitude towards them when they uh, try. Besides praying for them, encouraging them, what what else can they do to try to reach this daughter? Yeah, um, I'm assuming you mean an adult mm -hmm. an daughter, adult. like mm -hmm. out of the home. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because there would be a different set of answers if they were in the home. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about um, like a 30s Yep, with kid, their own family. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, you know, it's one of those tricky things. I think you do have to pray a lot about wisdom. This is that area of wisdom where you go, there's not the black or white, right or wrong. Wisdom is understanding the terrain and how do we navigate it. Because there's some people that you would say, well, you should call them. But there are other people that are saying, given the nature of y'all's relationship, a call would actually not be the best thing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this will probably go to, it will be really beneficial to have some people that know you really well that can advise you because maybe they can see some things in your life you can't see. Um, I saw this, uh, you know, reading through Hebrews, let us encourage one another as long as it's called today, that we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's fascinating about that text is he's saying the way sin works is it deceives you so you can't see how it's affecting you. So the context is, let us encourage each other. And so I need someone else to tell me what I don't see about the way I treat people. So I had a conversation with someone the other day with an adult child that's disrespectful. And they're like, can you help me? And I just told him, I know your heart, but let me just tell you, I listened to your phone call with him and you over, you correct him a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, and you come, you, you interrupt every sentence with, like, um, I I've never seen anything like it, quite honestly. And he was just like, wow, I didn't know that. And I'm like, yeah, it's, I know your heart in it, but I, th I, I'm not saying it's the reason your son's this way, but, um, I think I was help able to help mirror to him some, some of the, his behavior. So I would say getting some good people around you that know you really well can mirror your behavior for you. Mm -hmm. That was a long way to say a s small point. But then beyond that, I would say praying a lot about there's a boundary between my role and theirs, and I can't make up their part. So I can do on my part what I can do to say, uh, I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong and being specific. I'm sorry for that I didn't do this, that. Um, celebrating the things that you like. I'm seeing you do this as a parent. I think that's really great. Mm -hmm. Celebrating everything in their life you can that warmth may warm up their side, but there's also that understanding of going, I can't do their part. And the more I try to do that, the more I will push them away. So I wish I could give more direct That's counsel, good. but it's tricky. That's good. Um, so this question came up actually several in several ways and in, in several times. And um, so when we talk about the chaos and the brokenness that ensues in family, inevitably abuse is one of the things that experience yeah. in a broken family and broken relationships. And so we had questions come in around um, how do we handle and honor and do these things if there's been maybe verbal abuse or physical yeah. abuse or um, emotional type abuse? Um, yeah. how, how do we still honor our parents yeah. in that? Yeah, well... Again, there's a lot of specific nuance to it, but the framework that helps me is to think in terms of that Genesis mandate. That's why I wanted to go back to that, is we're meant to control what we can control to create an environment conducive to flourishing under God. So I have to do my role as um, a child of parents 
to, to create a context that we can all flourish under God. But that flourish under God is the operative thing. That doesn't mean doing everything you want. Sometimes what's best for you to flourish under God is not to give you everything you want, you know? And so uh, that's where the nature of a lot of disagreements can happen is you go, if your home is not a safe place to bring my children because it's not loving to bring them into that environment. Well, creating a context where every people, every person can flourish under God means I don't take my children there. That may frustrate you. So what do I do with you? Do I lie to you, put you off, yell at you? No, I, maybe the most courageous thing to do is to speak the truth to you and say, here's why. And I don't want this to be true. I want a relationship with you, but part of the consequences of these behaviors is this decision on my side. But spoken in a context where I want a redemptive story for you, I want to see you win, I want to see you grow and be all that you're meant to be under God. Now, finding that boundary line is the art in all this. And that's where I think, especially in abusive environments, sometimes you're not the objective person that can see that. That's why for me, um, I realized I'm not being the objective person as I'm dealing with my family issues. I got to phone a friend mm -hmm. that has been a counselor to me. Mm -hmm. And I had to... Or counseling. And then I got yeah. into counseling. Yeah. yeah, for that reason. And I think it was going through counseling that helped me um, see myself in the equation and see where I was doing things that weren't helpful mm -hmm. and what were the healthiest things I could do. Mm -hmm. And so I would advise counseling if you're in an abusive environment because that will make you the healthiest you in that environment. You don't help them by joining their crazy. This may be a short way to say it. No, that's good. I yeah. think that's really good. Um, and so uh, this question came in that said, I wish that I had heard this message years ago when my parents were still alive mm -hmm. um, and can see how this could be applicable to other parts of our lives. How would you suggest specifically applying the lessons of today to those who uh, don't have parents still alive or with them um, or don't have children? Yeah. Well, I would say, um, yeah, a lot of the application of this talk was about your nuclear family of origin, but families are the building blocks of a society. And so you look at like our country, and I can't remember the exact percentage now, but it's somewhere around, I think, 40% of children are growing up without one or both parents in the home. And you look as a society and you just have a lot of hurting families, a lot of families that are experiencing limitation or loss in different areas. And I would say, okay, you start with the nuclear family as it functions in a larger society. So if you're going, there's no one in this circle, well then the next natural circle is for you to look around and go, in my neighborhood, mm -hmm. in my community, in my, in my small group, in my city, mm -hmm. uh, where am I seeing need? that I have the ability to leverage my life to help. You know, so in the early church, Roman citizens would often dump baby girls because they weren't seen as valuable. The Christian community would care for those baby girls. Not in my circle, but they're in the water circle of our society. And so we have an obligation to that child in the image of God. And so I would say begin to pray, is there a widow in your neighborhood? Because that's where Paul will go in First Timothy. They need parents yeah. or they need their children to take care of them. Mm -hmm. If they don't have children that can do that, it falls on us as the mm -hmm. church family. So there are aging people in our church family that could use you. My sister has helped walk people to death's door who were elderly and had no family. I mean, it's amazing. She, mm -hmm. she had no official responsibility to do that, but she did under God. And there may be some single parent homes that really need your help. Or, so I would say, parent us, mm -hmm. love that's, us. That's really good. Yeah. Um, this message today, I think what you're saying is so applicable because as we see more broken families, more families that aren't the nucleus, the body of Christ can come around those families and Absolutely. be fathers to the fatherless Absolutely. and uh, care for the widow. And so um, wherever you are, whatever life stage you're in, wherever your parents are, your children are single, this is for all of us yes. to do. Um, yeah. So thank you for that today. Absolutely. And we're so glad to have you back. Thanks. We'll see you again <laughs> in the summer. Be we'll be ready for another yeah. update. Right. And thank you for joining us here for Postscript. We'll see you back here next week.
Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org slash postscript.